You're listening to A Culture Story on the audio version of the TIE. Thanks for listening. The TIE is a nonprofit newsroom that is funded by our audience. So, if you appreciate this article and you'd like to help us do more, head on over to support.thetie.ca and become a TIE builder. You choose the amount to give, and you can cancel at any time. Chemchemale, the place of many maple trees. By Angela Sterrett, June 2, 2023. Editor's Note, Unbroken, My Fight for Survival, Hope and Justice for Indigenous Women and Girls, out now from Greystone Books, chronicles Gixon journalist Angela Sterrett's journey of trauma and healing while fighting for recognition and justice for missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and two-spirit people, and more broadly, their protection and justice. It is a personal search, as well as a journalistic one, searching for answers about my identity and vulnerability took me on a journey where I learned about indigenous women whose lives often mirrored or shared themes in mine, Sterrett writes in the preface to the book. In this excerpt, Sterrett shares the history of what is now known as Vancouver, in particular what is now known as Gastown and the downtown east side, up until the point she moves to the neighborhood as a teenager in the 1990s. The land here opens up like a palm from a fist. Coniferous mountains push up from the shore as waves crinkle across the Pacific. Colossal red cedars and western hemlocks hug the slopes of the Sea Chichui Elkswin, Twin Sisters, and other towering mountains. Cedar scents blow through legions of trails that circle the rainforests as lush moss drips from big-leaf maples, the namesake of what now sits smack at the center of this striking sight. Kemkemale means place of the maple trees, or more specifically, of many maple woods or groves of maple woods. This was one of the names for Vancouver, where we would harvest trees higher than some skyscrapers, says Marissa Nahani, a Skuxwis 7 Mesh cultural leader, who is also a close family friend. The maple wood was used for homes, paddles, and tools, like bows and arrows, she tells me. Some with 7 Mesh people have shared that this is just one name for the coastal city, with most titles describing smaller villages or areas used for gathering wood or plants, fishing or hunting animals for food and clothing. Leklekai was one of the names to describe what is now called Crab Park, near Gastown, the neighborhood that shaped the beginnings of what is now known as the city of Vancouver where now stands an iconic steam clock and upscale art galleries and furniture shops once grew swaths of Devil's Club, huckleberries, and salal bushes in an understory of the rainforest. Frogs hopped in the swamps, while grouse waddled from the woods. Indigenous people thrived on the wealth of the waters too, including the oysters and mussels on the pebbly shores that wrap the land. Before it became one of the most expensive cities in the world, this area was a gathering place used by the Skuxwa 7 Mesh, Squamish, Slilda, Slaywatooth, and XWM Theta KWYM, Musqueam, for thousands of years. The once generous, resource rich rainforest was cut up and slashed through by the new colonials who came to the coast in the 1800s. Settlers turned the shoreline into a seaport that gave way to logging booms, the Canadian Pacific Railway, and the Hastings Mill Sawmill and later to roads leading to businesses like the Globe Saloon, owned then by John Gassy Jack Dayton. Until 2022, his statue stood prominently in Maple Tree Square at the junction of Carroll, Powell and Water Streets, the former site of his saloon in the neighborhood named after him, Gastown. Dayton, called Gassy Jack for his talkativeness, 
had two SKWs with seven mesh wives during his life, one just a girl named Quahelia or Wahalia, 12 years old. According to Skuck's with seven mesh oral history, the girl eventually ran away from her much older husband when she was 15. Taiti Tanitsis Weiss, a SKW Swaseven Mesh woman who wrote a poem about Quahelia, says her bravery makes her a role model for indigenous women. Gassy Jack's statue was defaced by red paint on at least one occasion and was toppled by a crowd of protesters during the Women's Memorial March in February 2022. Indigenous women have said his former wife Quahelia, now long deceased, should have a statue to replace his. In the early 1900s, Gastown stretched from today's downtown nearly to Maine and Hastings. The downtown east side was once the most important retail, political and cultural center of the city, encompassing Chinatown, Gastown and Strathcona. In the 1950s, though, shops and theaters moved toward Robson and Granville Streets, and as tourist traffic deteriorated, the hotels became run down. By 1965, the downtown east side started to face a steep decline, shaped by hard drugs and an influx of mentally ill patients released from institutions without being given resources like supportive housing. Its deterioration was amplified by the federal government's deficit-cutting agenda that put a halt to social housing in the 90s. And that's when I stepped onto the scene. As a bright, creative and sassy teenager, I didn't plan to live on the outskirts of the downtown east side. I was ambitious. As a girl, I had dreamed of becoming an artist, a model or a business owner. Looking back at my school records and reliving the instability and trauma, I don't recall having space to imagine living out any dream I had. I rarely was anywhere for longer than two years. I was sometimes in survival mode as a child. But as a teenager, Surviving the circumstances I'd been placed in gave me a better understanding of the world that was sharply divided by privilege and power on one side and disfranchisement and exclusion on the other. My experiences gave me aspirations of achieving something beyond my own success, I wanted to change that world. Nonetheless, there I was, a teenager living in downtown Vancouver and the downtown east side in an SRO, a term I see now as just a euphemism for shifty hotel. SROs lined poorer areas in North American cities like Toronto, New York and Vancouver. They are typically run-down residential hotels, characterized by small rooms with just enough space for a bed, a chair, and if you are lucky, a sink and a dresser. In the beginning these units in the downtown east side housed itinerant laborers, but with the changes in the neighborhood, like the Hastings Mill closing down, the buildings shifted to mostly housing low-income people who spent most of their welfare checks on the rent. The SROs I lived in were infested with bedbugs, dealers, and perverts. They were usually in various stages of disrepair, with sinks that often didn't work and poor ventilation. Nobody held the slumlords accountable for not fixing the faulty ventilation, lack of running water and broken windows. These places were not set up to safely house vulnerable teens. Creeps would grab me and other young women in the hallways or try to lure us with free beer or weed, or worse, try to break into our rooms at night. Our complaints to the hotel manager were met with eye rolls or, even worse, more lecherous advances from the hotel staff themselves. For me, the unpredictable and unregulated structure of these accommodations was just another part of the street life I'd become accustomed to. 
I stayed in one of the better SROs, known as the Piccadilly, on Pender Street. It shuttered in 2007 for fire code violations. It was closer to Granville Street and farther from Maine and Hastings, where then, like today, all the street action is a noisy and frantic scene that includes a kind of open-air drug market where people openly smoke crack with makeshift pipes and shoot opioids. It is a place that I see as one manifestation of deep trauma, where hurt people are in need of mental, emotional and spiritual healing, accessible and safe health care, and proper housing that society is failing to provide them. As a street kid, I was living with my own trauma and was coping the best way I could. A friend I grew up with recently described the time we spent on the street, when she was 13 and I was 17, in this way, we were reality-averse. When I told her I wasn't sure how much I wanted to divulge in my book about our lives then, in particular our coping mechanisms, she told me, it's your book, you should do what you want, but if you're trying to tell your story, drugs were sometimes a part of it. It wasn't so much that we were addicted, but we took whatever we could get our hands on, she explained. Another friend reminded me that we were dealing with a lot of trauma, from constant abuse, assault and abandonment, but we were also teenagers experimenting with life. Adapted with permission of the publisher, from the book Unbroken, My Fight for Survival, Hope, and Justice for Indigenous Women and Girls, written by Angela Sterrett and published by Greystone Books in May 2023. Thanks for stopping by the Taiyi today. Anytime you're in the mood to listen to important stories written well, we'll be here. And if you'd like to keep independent media going strong, head over to thetaiyi.ca and click on the Support Us button to pitch in. Finally, big, big thank you to all of our Taiyi builders who made this story possible.